It was very late at night, almost two in the morning, and the street outside my home was dark and quiet. When I pulled open my window, I did so knowing full well that the bugs of a Florida night may come rushing into the warmly lit room in which I was residing, but it was worth the risk of late night mosquitoes, and I pulled open the window either way. I wondered what my neighbors must have seen. Me in my pajamas peeking out into the darkness long after midnight, a smile on my face grinning up at the sky. That was because on the morning of November 16th, just two weeks ago, a rocket launched from our coast, and a very important rocket at that. It was Artemis 1, a rocket without a pilot, hurtling toward the moon. It was the first step in a brand new mission from NASA to return Americans to the lunar surface. We've talked about it many, many times on the show, and I felt the need to check in and tell you how this story is going once or twice a year, because since this show began, I have been fascinated and eager to tell you about the launches that have been occurring on our coast. So if you are unaware of what the Artemis Project is and why it's so important, I have an episode all about it. I'll include it at the top of the episode description so you can catch up on the story so far. Sometimes I feel the need to remind you that NASA is literally launching human beings into space from the shores of Florida, and it's my job to remind you how totally insane that is. Human beings have not been to the moon in nearly 50 years now, with the completion of Apollo 17 in December of 1972. That is a very, very long time, especially when you consider that we spent over a decade working to achieve that goal in the first place, and finished up within three years of doing it for the first time. Artemis, named for Apollo's sister in Greek mythology, who is also the goddess of the moon, is the mission that is set to return humanity to space, specifically from our shores. And on November 16th, at almost 2 in the morning, I watched an orange light illuminate the sky. Seriously, my entire horizon was bright orange, and I am a fair distance from Cape Canaveral. It was that bright. I watched a bolt of light rip through the sky toward the heavens. Did I cry? Yes, mostly because I was thinking of Apollo 1, the first mission of the Apollo program that wasn't really a mission at all. See, Apollo 1 was set to be a proper launch with three pilots on board, but during a test of the Apollo vehicle, three astronauts died when a fire broke out during rehearsal. Their names are Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chafee. That was 55 years ago, the first Apollo mission. And as I watched the Artemis mission take its first steps, I couldn't help but think of those three astronauts who never got to see what their mission would become. But right now, in Artemis 1, not only are the procedures going to plan, but we are also getting some of the most staggering space photos I've ever seen in my life. Seeing Earth from the distance of the moon is remarkable. The spacecraft is actually orbiting the moon right now. It began quote-unquote distant retrograde orbit this past Friday, Black Friday. It is currently orbiting the moon as you hear this, if you listen within the first few days of this episode's release. It is still literally orbiting the moon right now. It will be headed home soon. But on the day of this episode's release, Artemis 1 is actually set to break a record. It will likely travel further from Earth than any vehicle intended to carry humans has ever traveled. Aboard the disastrous Apollo 13 mission, that vehicle went over 248,000 miles from home. Artemis 1 may go as far as 270,000 today on the day of this episode's release. Big stuff is happening in space right now. History in the stars. But before we talk about the history of the stars and its relationship to the history back on land, I have to tell you one more thing, something very relevant to the story we're talking about today. It's about the interesting occupant of Artemis 1, the only person aboard, well, person is perhaps a strong word. It's actually a mannequin covered in sensors, wearing a spacesuit. 
His name is Commander Munikin Campos. His last name comes from an important figure in NASA history, an electrical engineer named Arturo Campos. Mr. Campos was involved in Apollo 13. He helped get the astronauts home safely, and the name was actually voted on by the public to honor that important figure. It's a fitting title for an important part of the Artemis mission, a literal way to ensure that the flight will be safe for the human being astronauts aboard. As for his name, his last name is Campos, named after Arturo Campos, involved in Apollo 13, but his first name, did you catch it? It's Munikin, as in the word mannequin with the word moon in it. It's a it's an imperfect pun, but I like it, Moonikin. <laughs> I hope you find it as funny as I do, especially because it's not exactly, it, it doesn't exactly read easily as a pun on the word mannequin when you read it, because they also spell it differently than the word mannequin. I digress. Moonikin Campos is the future, guiding our path back to the moon. But I tell you about Moonikin because how he got his name is lovely. Many options were considered and voted upon for various reasons, and Campos was the figure they chose to honor. But 50 years ago, the same year as Apollo 17 completed its final moon mission, the public were putting into motion a plan to have a very important name changed as well. They were making their voices heard because they were arguing in favor of Cape Canaveral, the exact spot where rockets have been launching from our shores for 60 years. See, back then, it wasn't called Cape Canaveral. It was called Cape Kennedy. And this week's episode is all about the drama that unfolded to get that name changed back. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, the war for Canaveral, how the Cape got its name, how it lost it, and how a bunch of people yelled at the American government until they changed it back. Literally. It's a strange little story, but one I found extraordinarily funny, and I felt the need to share it with you because it shares an important anniversary with today's date, November 28th. It just started raining as I recorded this segment, so if you hear some distant fuzz in the background, it's a, a, a strange Florida autumn storm in the distance. Anyway, to begin our story, I'd like to introduce you to a segment of the United States government you may never have heard of. I read American history all the time, it's my job, and I still don't think I've ever stumbled onto this particular board ever before this moment. Maybe in passing, but clearly not enough to make an impact as they have on this story. They are called the U.S. Board on Geographic Names. If you've heard of them, here's a firm handshake. Good for you, nerd. Anyway, if you have heard of them, I doubt you know the history, and I'm glad to tell you about that history today. The U.S. Board on Geographic Names was created in 1890, and it's actually interdepartmental, meaning they don't answer to one specific department of the government, though it does seem they work a lot with the Department of the Interior, who runs many things, including our national parks. They describe themselves as an agency that provides provides, quote, uniform geographic name usage throughout the federal government, end quote. That means that basically stuff needs to be called the right thing. If it's a river, it's a river. If it's a pond, it's a pond. Stuff like that. Their founder was a man named Thomas Corwin Mendenhall, an Ohio native. Born in 1841, Mendenhall's parents used their home as a stop along the Underground Railroad, helping escaped enslaved persons find their way to freedom. Mendenhall educated himself, was part of the first faculty at Ohio State University. He traveled to Japan to study physics there with the brilliant physicists in Japan and returned home to study meteorology. In 1889, he took over a group called the U.S. Coast and Geodetic Survey. Today, we call them the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. 
Who knew? So Mendenhall was working for the prototype version of Noah, and he suggested to the government that they create a board for naming stuff. He said they could solve any quote-unquote geographical orthography. What is that? Well, orthography is defined by Merriam-Webster as, quote, the art of writing words with the proper letters according to standard usage, end quote. Basically, orthography means how do you write down what a thing is called? On maps and documents and important things like that, names matter, so the board could be used to clearly write down, distinguish, and define what a thing is and why it is named what it is named, and the name itself. President Benjamin Harrison agreed that this was something that he wanted to see in our country, so he used an executive order and made it happen. The U.S. Board on Geographic Names was born. As far as I can tell, they've lived an uneventful existence uh, since then. Apparently, they squabbled over whether or not Martha's Vineyard could have that possessive apostrophe in it. They said it could, but that's neither here nor there. The real drama, probably the biggest drama they've ever been involved in, as far as I could tell, happened right here in Florida. It was 1963, and the drama was over the renaming of a spot of a land just on our eastern coast. If they hadn't been involved, I might have lived my entire life never discovering them, and maybe you wouldn't have either. Yet, here they are. So let's jump to November 28th, 1963, 59 years ago today. It is the night of Thanksgiving that year. This is President Lyndon Baines Johnson. He's speaking on television. Here's what he has to say in his Thanksgiving address. But we remember in our hearts this brave young man who lies in honored eternal rest across the Potomac. We remember him. We remember his wonderful and courageous widow that we all love. We remember Caroline and John and all the great family who gave the nation this son and brother. And to honor his memory and the future of the works that he started, I have today determined that station number one of the Atlantic Missile Range and the NASA Launch Operations Center in Florida shall hereafter be known as the John F. Kennedy Space Center. I have also acted today with the understanding and the support of my friend, the governor of Florida, Farish Brown, to change the name of Cape Canaveral. It shall be known hereafter as Cape Kennedy. A simple statement made to honor a fallen president, but one that would have ripple effects for years and years to come. President Johnson didn't make that statement to cause turmoil, though turmoil would certainly follow. Lyndon B. Johnson was merely paying tribute to a horrific event that had just occurred a few days previous, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. On November 22, 1963, just a few days earlier, in Dallas, Texas, JFK had been assassinated, and on the tarmac before flying home, Lyndon Johnson was sworn in as president. The next few days were chaos, and on November 27th, LBJ addressed Congress. Tonight, on the 28th, he spoke to the people directly and said this about JFK's death. A great leader is dead. A great nation must move on. Yesterday is not ours to recover, but tomorrow is ours to win or to lose. I am resolved that we shall win the tomorrows before us. So I ask you to join me in that resolve, determined that from this midnight of tragedy, 
we shall move toward a new American greatness. LBJ was looking to the future while honoring what had come before, and in what seemed like a simple way to memorialize a fallen president, he named a spot of land after him and the building connected to it as well. After all, the Moon Project had been JFK's baby. He had delivered the famous moonshot speech and pushed NASA toward bringing America to the moon before the end of the 1960s, a goal they completed, though JFK didn't live to see it. Interestingly, JFK's final visit to NASA before his assassination, it was on November 16th, 1963. November 16th, that's 59 years to the day before Artemis 1 was launched from our shores. What a bizarre coincidence, don't you think? Either way, JFK and LBJ cared about the NASA program, and LBJ graciously renamed the Kennedy Space Center in his late colleague's honor. That was not the problem for people. The problem was he also said that it was going to be called Cape Kennedy now, not Cape Canaveral. According to the Washington Post from the time, the idea to rename the Cape apparently came from Jackie Onassis Kennedy, JFK's widow. But within a day, the people near Cape Canaveral started quietly stating some dissent. They were fine with the Space Center being renamed in Kennedy's honor, but the Cape itself, now that may be too much. In an article from the Orlando Evening Star from November 29th, 1963, the next day, a restaurant operator named Bernard Fisher said, quote, I don't know about renaming the Cape. It's been Cape Canaveral since it was named anything, end quote. One very angry opinion comes from a man named A.A. A. Dunn. He was the chairman of the Port Authority, and he said the following, quote, Other presidents have lived and died, and they didn't change names of landmarks, end quote. A bit cold, Mr. Dunn. He added, quote, I'll go along with the great grief over the death of President Kennedy, but I can't agree with the change of the name of the Cape, end quote. Another resident, Ed Fisher, he talked about how he sells shrimp, Cape Canaveral shrimp. He says the shrimp will taste just the same, but Cape Canaveral shrimp is a brand that, quote, sticks in the minds of buyers, end quote. The next day in the Orlando Sentinel, a vignette is described of a new sign being erected that read Cape Kennedy, though only a few letters had been painted so far, so it simply read Cape Ken for now. The Sentinel says, quote, Superficially, the change was made easily and willingly enough, but brushing aside four centuries of tradition will be a difficult, if not impossible, task. End quote. The Sentinel goes on to report that, though out-of-towners and military personnel liked the new name, locals did not. One man, Gus Edwards, is quoted as saying, quote, I don't favor it. I think it would be unwise in view of the fact that all the mariners of the world know the name of Cape Canaveral, end quote. My favorite person quoted in this article is a post office employee, quote, who asked that her name not be used, end quote. Under anonymity, this post office employee said, quote, I would rather not say how I feel about the change, end quote. So that's an anonymous opinion from an anonymous person. Hilarious. She did, however, tell the Sentinel that people were already sending letters their way, hoping to get a letter postmarked with the brand new title, Cape Kennedy. On top of this, an article in the Coco Tribune from December 10th, 1963, featured several letters from readers concerning the name change. Many of the letters published here express favor toward the name change, saying that the people of this area should be honored that their home is memorializing a fallen president. One Nancy B. Keenan writes, quote, As for me, I am indeed proud to be a part of the future at Cape Kennedy, end quote. The future was on a lot of people's minds here, but many complaints about the change also frequently referred to the past. 
In that first article, the one in the Orlando Evening Star, a man named Fred Boyer provides his expertise. He was a, quote, map consultant for the Rollins College Library, end quote. That is my alma mater, and I would love if I could be a map consultant there, whatever a map consultant is. Anyway, Boyer apparently notes that the name Canaveral appears as far back as 1598. Quote, Canaveral is a Spanish word meaning cane or reed field, end quote. It's slightly more complicated than that, of course, what a surprise. The area known as Cape Canaveral, which sort of juts off the land north of Cocoa Beach and south of Merritt Island, where Kennedy Space Center actually is, has been named Canaveral for about 400 years, a little bit more than that now, about four and a half hundred years now. Native Floridians have lived on the Cape for centuries, which we know because middens are still found in the area, old burial grounds where bodies and waste were piled up, important archaeological digs for folks who want to understand the history of our state. Interestingly, many of those middens were actually cleared away to make space for the Kennedy Space Center. The website Spaceline reports in an article by one Cliff Lethbridge, quote, although middens on the Cape are currently protected, a large number were destroyed when full-scale construction of missile range facilities was begun, end quote. I'm going to look into that. I would love to see more about that story, what, what happened to those middens, who approved them getting cleared out, and what ones still remain. I'll see if there's something more I can talk about that in the future, because that would be very, very interesting. But it wasn't until the Spanish came to the Cape that the Cape became Canaveral. It wasn't until the 16th century that we see names being ascribed to the area. Spaceline says that it was originally called the Cape of Currents, so as to warn sailors to avoid the dangerous waters nearby. Canaveral, however, became the name because, indeed, the Spanish noted that there was sugarcane along this bit of land. We'll come back to that in a second. Canaveral seems to be translated in different ways, though. It seems like the most accepted translation is cane break, or the place of the cane bearers. One story says that the latter name, quote, was named by Spanish Cape explorer Francisco Gordillo after he was shot by an ayas arrow made of cane, end quote. The Ayas, spelled A-I-S, are a native people from the region. We'll talk about them more next year. Either way, the word Canaveral seems to come from sugarcane, except that, quote, there is no actual sugarcane indigenous to the Cape Canaveral area, end quote. The Spanish just saw something that looked a bit like sugarcane and named it Canaveral after the cane that they thought they saw. But, as one person pointed out during all these articles about people complaining about the name being changed, it wasn't even called Canaveral until the Spanish came. It's not like it's been called Canaveral since the dawn of time. We don't really know what the native people called it. They didn't call it Canaveral. So who's to say that the name couldn't be changed? Despite some complaints, and despite most people seemingly ignoring the Kennedy name and calling it Cape Canaveral anyway, the Cape became Kennedy. End of story. Except nobody wanted to call it Cape Kennedy. And nobody did. I weirdly know a few people who still refer to it as Cape Kennedy, but the name did not stick. LBJ changed it in 1963, and a decade would pass where technically the Cape was still called Cape Kennedy. The U.S. Board on Geographic Names made it so, so it stuck. Not quite. Apparently, the conversation never stopped, and in 1969, an article in the Evening Tribune brought it back up again, and was even taking opinions from its readers. They sent out a sort of coupon where you could clip the coupon out of the paper, check yes or no, I like Cape Kennedy, I like Cape Canaveral, and then you would send it into the newspaper, and they would do a poll of how people felt about it. 
In an article about the renaming, a bunch of dissent to the name is voiced seemingly anonymously. Here's just a few. Quote, the name is part of the history of Florida. I am sick of the name Kennedy. End quote. Another one said, quote, let's forget the emotional upset and go back to normalcy. End quote. One more, perhaps the most important quote says, quote, Cape Canaveral was here long before the Kennedys and will be long after they are gone. End quote. In an early tabulation of the votes in 1969, people in favor of keeping it Cape Canaveral numbered as high as 97.5%, and only 2.5% were in favor of keeping it Cape Kennedy. The support was strong enough that it made it to Congress when Florida's two senators in 1969, Spessard Holland and Edward Gurney, suggested that the name be changed back. It was a proposal to finally bring back Cape Canaveral and to appease those who were complaining. But strangely, there was pushback. A group of students from Florida State University were part of a campaign called Keep Cape Kennedy. Their co-chairman, Wayne Rubanis, had this to say, quote, In this time of social conflict, our nation needs to remember its past with pride. John Fitzgerald Kennedy is the dynamic symbol of our search for a better tomorrow, epitomized by our quest in outer space. Cape Kennedy belongs to the nation, end quote. That quote was published July 15th, 1969. The next day, on July 16th, Apollo 11 would launch from our coasts and human beings would land on the moon for the very first time. Three years would pass and six missions would successfully bring America to the moon. But in 1972, the final mission would come to pass. Apollo 17 would bring us to the moon for the final time in December of 1972, and things were set into motion to have the name reverted to Cape Canaveral. It was an end of an era of sorts. The Senate Interior Committee heard from Floridians who wanted the original name restored. Then, in Congress, bills were moving forward to retain the name Kennedy Space Center, but to push the Cape back to Canaveral. Then, Representative Louis Frey Jr., who represented the Cape in Congress, said, quote, The sudden change of the name of the entire Cape from Canaveral to Kennedy not only goes against the wishes of the vast majority of the people who work and live in the area, but also throughout Florida, end quote. He spoke to those in charge and made sure his constituents were heard, and in 1973, nearly a full decade later, finally, the name was changed. A spokesperson for the Department of the Interior said that, quote, the response is unprecedented. It's by far the largest male response to a name change we've ever received, end quote. According to the Orlando Sentinel, October 7th, 1973, almost a thousand letters came in favor of putting the name back, quote, only 16 letters opposed the change, end quote. The previous spring, the state legislature had agreed to change it back to Canaveral, and Governor Reuben Askew signed it, meaning all the street names and maps and such had to get changed back. Then, two days after that previous article, on October 9th, 1973, it was made official. The U.S. Board on Geographic Names agreed that Cape Kennedy was no more. Long live Cape Canaveral. The name has remained ever since. Was there some deeper political reason that Florida resisted the Kennedy name? Was there a natural inclination to keep things the way they were? Why did everybody care so much? I don't really know, but they did. It gives me some comfort knowing that Floridians can make a whole lot of change happen over something so small as a name as long as they put their voices together and shout it to the rooftops. Maybe we could do that more often. Maybe we could do it to focus on things a lot more important, a lot more vital to the betterment of our lives as Floridians. Maybe the next time we raise our voices up and get a bunch of people to listen to us about something that only really matters to us, it could be something a little bit more important than the name of a cape near where rockets reach toward the stars. 
And one last thing before I go. Artemis 2 will be set for launch over a year from now, and I hope that you are paying attention to the important things that are happening on that coast, because Artemis 1 is the future. Artemis 1 is the kind of thing that our, hopefully, ancestors will be interested in hearing about, the, the stories that they will look back on the same way that I gleefully and reverently look back on the Apollo missions. I hope that at least in some way you are paying attention because history is happening in so many places in so many exhausting, painful ways. But for me, I am always brought a lot of hope in knowing that I am watching very important history that makes me feel very, very good whenever I watch a rocket launch from our shores. And thanks to the folks 50 years ago now, they are launching from Cape Canaveral. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. We are nearly at the end of our winter season. It has been so much fun, but man, I am excited for the spring season, and I'm excited for the holidays at the end of this month. I hope that you enjoyed your previous week. If you celebrated Thanksgiving, I hope it was a good one for you. If you are looking forward to this December as much as I am, enjoy December 1st is just around the corner. Which means also the Wait 5 Minutes holiday special is just around the corner and a very exciting finale. Oh man, you're going to love it. I'm very, very proud of that one. It's about bricks. I'm, I'm going to keep teasing it. It's about bricks. You'll see. Anyway, if you enjoyed this episode, if you're looking forward to future episodes, if you've enjoyed any episode of this show, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps the show grow and it means a lot to me to know what you enjoy about this show. You can also find the show on Instagram and Facebook at WFMPod, and you can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. I'd like to remind you that I contributed to a book called Florida. It's published by A24, and it covers so many wonderful, intricate, interesting details about the history of our state, including a bit more about the history of Cape Canaveral and the history of how NASA came to Florida in the first place. I wrote that. Go check it out. That's one of the things that I contributed to the book, along with some other incredible Florida writers. I've heard that the book Florida would make a pretty great holiday gift. So if you're looking for something for the Florida nerd in your life, why don't you pick up a copy of Florida? I have included a link in the episode description. Go pick up your copy today. And if you get one, tag WFM Pod. I'd love to see you with your own copy of our book. Thank you. And thank you for listening. All the music used in this episode was originally composed. All right, that is it for this week. I will be back at you next Monday for our first episode in December. We're going to be talking about a very interesting change in the state of Florida in the 1940s. See, when the attack on Pearl Harbor occurred in 1941, a lot changed across the entire world, but especially right here in the state of Florida. We're going to talk about Pearl Harbor and how Florida prepared to get involved in World War II. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others, and please, as always, drink more water. Have a great week. I will see you next Monday.